this weekend, I've got the women's snooker masters. I'm going to regret this, but can we can we have a match? That will be our next outing. Definitely. Yeah. Maybe with a little lubrication. Always, always lubrication for Paul. <laughs> Try and do snooker sober and pull the other. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of Are You Sitting Uncomfortably? with me, Gemma Greaves. This is the podcast that features courageous storytellers who are comfortable with getting uncomfortable. Today in my prickly chair is the marketing and business powerhouse, Cheryl Calverley. A psychology graduate, Cheryl has spent her life fascinated by what makes people tick and what makes them do the things that they do. She cut her teeth in Unilever, working on some of the UK's most iconic brands, from Marmite to Pot Noodle, and went on to lead marketing roles in Birdseye and the AA, before taking the leap to general management when she took on the role of Chief Executive of Eve Sleep in May 2020. Unfortunately, the tsunami of market conditions wasn't kind, and Eve Sleep entered into administration in October 2022, before being bought by Benson's for Beds. A self-confessed adrenaline junkie and never want to shy away from a challenge, Cheryl is now co-founder of her own startup, The Den, a first-of-its-kind social club, giving teenagers a real-life alternative to screens. I cannot wait to hear more about this. What you may not know about Cheryl is she plays on the women's snooker tour and pool at county level, so she really can hustle like the best of us. Welcome, Cheryl. <laughs> Thanks, Gemma. <laughs> Good to be here, Gem. How are you feeling being in the prickly chair? It, it's The chair's not prickly, although there is, for anyone that can't see, there is a very prickly cactus on the table, there which is. is sort of looking at me ominously. So, uh, so yeah. <laughs> Cheryl, are you sitting uncomfortably? I am sitting uncomfortably with a, with a latte in my hand, having just finished a cup of tea. So I'm all good. Excellent, excellent. So what do we need to know about you from before to understand who you are now? And thank you, Gemma, for warning me that you're going <laughs> to come with this brutal question because I've been thinking about this. Yeah. I think, I think the thing that probably most defines how I go about life now is the fact I've always been a bit of a, I don't know if I want to say a square peg in a round hole. I've never really fit conventions. So as a little girl, I wasn't anything girls should be. I was, you know, pick a word. Difficult, challenging, uh, bossy, boisterous, opinionated. Um, I certainly wasn't the thing that, that that girls were meant to be, which was, you know, polite and kind and demure and caring and all that sort of stuff. And who says girls are meant to be? Everyone when you're a little girl. <laughs> <laughs> and that becomes all of your your school reports and, and feedback. I've sort of always gone through life going, that that is who I am and I can't change it. And any attempt to change it has been difficult. So I'm going to have to forge a path through life where I sort of make life fit my square peg rather than, than fitting into round holes. And I think that has characterised everything. So when I see something that needs changing, I tend to, to want to go and change it rather than wanting to fit around it. Unilever has a great phrase about a change catalyst, you know, and to be that you need to be a bit, a bit spiky. But it is interesting because it, it meant I sort of believed that that I wasn't massively likable. So as, as, when I was younger, I was like, 
I just have to accept the fact that I'm not I'm not what people like. I'm not sort of going to giggle along and I'm not going to say the right thing in a conversation to make people feel good or all the things that makes you likable. And so I sort of went into my professional career going, look, I'm just going to have to be a bit full on and ballsy, but accept that I'm not going to make friends. And then I had this, this, and this is great. Anyone who gives feedback to their boss, mm-hmm. the importance of this, because I still remember this piece of feedback from the first person I ever managed. And I would have been like 25, maybe I was at Unilever. And she said, she said I was warm and caring and empathetic, which are three words I would never have used to describe myself. And she said that I inspired her to say things that she didn't think she could say and to be someone she didn't think she could be. And I was 25 when she said that. I love that. And that piece of feedback, I think, completely changed, completely changed the way I sort of understood myself in relation to other people and made me realise that actually, not so much that I'm likeable, but that that my impact on other people and being able to change and help other people is really important to me. Something that I hadn't particularly realised until that. So, yeah. It's funny how, because you associate yourself as a young person, you know, bossy, assertive mm. and all of those things, how that then can't be kind and empathetic. Mm. It, it, so that's exactly it, exactly. Yeah. And you, you kind of, yeah, so so therefore that means I am difficult. Therefore that means I'm, yeah. Yeah. Well, I can testify you're very likeable, so. <laughs> <laughs> and good fun. <laughs> Who wants to fit into these pegs though, right? I, I don't I don't know. I'm training as a coach at the moment, actually, and, and reflecting on my, my coaching ethos and my coaching stance. And I realised that that fundamental belief that, Fitting in to something that other people expect of you is not the easiest, best, happiest, or indeed most successful way to live life. Yeah, is really fundamental to my coaching ethos. So yeah. most of my coaching, because your coaching always reflects your own outlook, most of my coaching is about helping people sort of shake off the shackles of other people's opinion or, or what they imagine other people's opinion to be or what they imagine society expects them to do and instead understand what they are and who they want to be. And that's quite a big thing for me, that sort of freedom of thought, independence, identity, you know, forging a path which is right for you and, and not worrying about what everyone else wants because they're worrying about that. You can only worry about what you, you. want. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. And to be yourself. Mm. So I'm going to dive right in. Go on then. What makes you uncomfortable? What's your uncomfortable truth? What's my uncomfortable truth? And and this is definitely something that uh, that has come to clarity, I think, over my time, particularly leading Eve, but actually throughout my leadership journey as you, as you go up the, the ranks of a business. And I don't know if this is about being a woman in business or if this is about being in big, ugly businesses or, or whatever. I think my uncomfortable truth, the, things that, the thing that I wrestle with most professionally is whether I am hard enough. So having said everything about being a square peg and a round hole, whether actually I'm hard enough to make the hard decisions and to be hard to people that you need to do to be successful in business. And whether someone who's harder than me would be more successful in my in my shoes with my level of privilege. But on the flip side, whether by being harder, you're basically a wanker. And then the deep uncomfortable truth is, do you have to be a wanker to be successful in business? I'd really hope not, (laughs) to be fair. I hope not. I hope not. So where do you think that that comes from, this this feeling of maybe not being hard enough? 
I think when you move into leadership, particularly when you go up to being solitary leadership, which CEOing is really, you're not, you're not really, you haven't got, you're not sort of co-leading, you're, you're sort of on your own and it's sort of slightly your, you're getting up in the morning and you're making it happen, which I love doing. You are only doing it for your own reasons, your own sense of purpose. And I remember when I, I remember joining Eve, I remember walking down through Camden, Camden High Street, sort of trying to work out why I was leading this business. It's not a great time to start worrying about that just as you become a CEO. Just as you, become, like you should yeah. really know. And I suddenly realised I didn't quite know why I was leading a business, this business. And then, and then if you don't know why, then it's very difficult because you haven't got a North Star. And I thought it's not to make as much money as we possibly can. You know, I, obviously I want to be a successful business, but I'm not driven by, I would like an exit and billions of pounds. I'm not particularly financially oriented. It wasn't for status. There's definitely higher status businesses. I could have been more senior and I'd have come out, I'd come out of a much higher status business where I had a much, mm. you know, bigger brand and a bigger team and all that sort of stuff. It definitely was to make sure that our investors, well, to try and make sure we failed in the end, our investors, you know, saw the proceeds of the money that they'd put into the business and their belief in us, but that wasn't going to get me up every morning. And I sort of realised, actually, it was to prove to the world that you could run a business that was a happy place, that made you better. And I think in a lot of our careers, we're in businesses that make us worse, that fight against the things that make us happy. They, you know, they pull us away from fans and family and friends. They make us frustrated. They make us anxious. They make us lose our confidence. They make us behave in ways we don't like. And I wanted to create a business that would have been the business that I wanted to work in when I was in my 20s. And a business and a way of working that would be a benchmark for everyone that worked there. So when they went into another job and moved on in their careers, they would go, right, I want a business that feels like that because that's how business should be done. But that business that we tried to create ended up going into administration. So we didn't do what I wanted to do. We didn't prove that you could make an amazing business and be successful. We sort of experienced that that wasn't the outcome. But you were marketing director or CMO before you became chief exec there, right? And, you know, you were leading a really big turnaround. And so earlier on that year, you were in a really, really good place. So it sounds like you were doing all the right things. So... Isn't it fair to say that it's also market conditions? It was entirely market. Right, so it, and, and not the, your leadership. Market, the market disappeared under our feet. Yeah. I am very wary of, of in life sort of blaming external factors and things go wrong and internal factors and things go right. Because you need to be the other way around because mm. luck is luck and bad luck is bad luck and your decisions are your decisions for good and for bad. But the market disappeared and, you know, made.com, which is a much bigger business than us, went into administration about three or four weeks yeah. after us, which, whilst absolutely awful, sort of is corroboration, if you like, of the of the of the, the circumstances we were under. But the uncomfortable truth, the uncomfortable reflection is definitely, did I act firmly enough and strongly enough and swing hard enough? Was I able to move from a position of building an amazing business in growth, riding a good market, to really cutting hard and really doing things that would make me feel I wasn't being the leader I wanted to be because it was the right thing for the business. Yeah. Was I actually sacrificing my own self for the business, as you probably should? Now, in amongst all that uncomfortable truth, not only was there nothing we could have done to prevent what happened, all we needed to get us through to success was a couple of million quid and we couldn't couldn't raise that in the market. And actually, posters going to Benson's beds, you know, I, I know where their numbers are landing. And... 
quite pleasingly, it's exactly where I forecast. So had we had we been able to get the two million quid we needed, we would have come through it. Harem scarum, but we would have come through it and we couldn't. So, you know, and I think you do learn, right? I think I'll be quicker to act harder or I am quicker to act harder in, in future. But I don't think I ever wanted to lead a business that I didn't want to lead. Yeah. And if I'd acted harder, I'd, I'd have made a business I didn't, I didn't want to be in. And then that's the worst of all worlds. Exactly. Because then you're not being authentic to yourself or, or the culture that you've created. And you're all miserable. Yeah. And there's no rowing back from that. Yeah. You screw it all up and make an unpleasant culture. Like, there's no rowing back from that. I was listening the other day because thinking about this, this conversation and the, the experience that, that you've had, looking at different businesses where they've done brilliantly and seem to have had leaders who choose to be kind, empathetic and not quite frankly a wanker because I believe there must be another way. So look at Whitney Wolf Hurd of Bumble and I was listening to one of her team the other day at a conference and she said, you know, she was talking about, you know, what an inspirational leader she is and how you know, she's always about thinking bigger and better and, and I really relate to that because I'm a little bit like that when, when I did the things I did before. But also making sure you're creating that culture and Naomi said that the biggest thing for her that she's learned is creating that culture of psychological safety where people truly feel that they can be themselves and therefore you create a culture where you can encourage valuable contributions and risk-taking. So surely that's a really good thing as opposed to the fear of not being able to speak up. And that's essentially what you created, right, with your team. Uh, absolutely. And, oh God, I couldn't agree more how important that is. I was doing a... A thing at a sifted conference on risk. I was leading a round table. It's brilliant. One of these moments where you where you feel talk about imposter syndrome. So leading a round table on risk management and manage, managing through times of crisis. You know, and clearly business going bust period time of crisis. And I go around the table, and the first gentleman next to me turns out to the man who manages basically all the crisis for the government, including the evacuation of Afghanistan, Ukraine, everything. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> You may know a wee bit more than me about managing crisis, but it was wonderful because you would expect a, a sort of government risk managing person to be like, oh, no, here's the process. And here's the, the you know, he he talked at great length about the most important thing in time of crisis is you have psychological safety because people need to speak. You need to hear and people need to be able to act as independent, confident agents yeah. because all you have is, is sort of those agents. Right. I can't not work in a world where there's psychological safety. It's it's like, it's so fundamental for, for me. And it was a big thing at Eve in sort of the journey we went to, the leadership and, and culture journey we went on, was creating that environment of psych psychological safety. I'm a pretty vulnerable leader. There's a rare CEO that will cry in a meeting. I've been known to cry in meetings. I did an entire board meeting when Eve was on the way down in tears through the whole board meeting, which was not amazing. But I think women bringing honesty and emotion and vulnerability, I think it's a privilege and a responsibility we have because men have not had the privilege of being able to do that. Men have had to hide all of their emotions and that's why often it comes out as anger. Let's release everyone from these horrible, oppressive shackles of you can't possibly share how you're feeling and we will get to a better cultural space, you know? Mm. I love that and I, I think it's so important as a leader to show vulnerability and, and create that culture. And the best leaders that I've seen do show vulnerability and do, you know, encourage their team to be able to be 
their selves as well. And that's the only way you can do it. Looking back, what do you think you could have done differently? I, I mean, I've, and I've spoken about this. I think the line that I, I walk differently now, definitely, is asking the difficult questions. I think sometimes when you are, as a leader, I back off. I'm asking the difficult questions because I don't want to be a knob, right? I don't want to make people feel like getting in their way, being a blocker, holding them back. Mm. I don't want them to, I don't want to feel like they don't have a space of psychological safety. And so I back off probably from asking the difficult questions and really prodding and really poking. I trust. And definitely if I'd asked a number of more difficult questions and asking those questions in areas that I don't understand. So, and admitting you don't understand. Yeah, admitting I don't understand, I don't have a problem with. And, That's and, good. And because, quite frankly, most of business now, most people don't understand. I don't understand how data architecture works because I'm not a data architecture person. So that's fine. Yeah, you only know what you know, right? But the challenge, I think, when you is then going, and so I'm going to ask you this, and then when they explain it to you and you still don't understand, I'm going to ask you again, and I'm going to ask you again. And yes, I know we're overrunning from this meeting and I know you've got a more important meeting to go to, but I need to ask this. I need to keep asking it. And you need to walk me through this like a baby until I really understand it. That's the difficult thing because I think you feel like you're just being unnecessarily challenging. Yeah. And particularly in, I mean, in this example in Eve, I never understood how poor our data connections were. So I didn't understand how weak the base of decision that I was making decisions on was. Until we brought a brilliant data director, but we brought him in and it was only, you know, six months, eight months before we went. Well, sorry, I could have done with him two years before, but it would have been a massively expensive hire. So it's that sort of stuff. And that's definitely the big thing with me now. I mean, on the den, which is our, our new project, we're, we're looking at property and we had a, a good conversation with, with some property agents yesterday. And I've recorded the whole conversation because there's loads of stuff I don't understand there. And I'm going to go away and I'm going to listen to it back and I'm going to look it all up because I'm not making that same mistake again. Because it's only me. I've yeah. got to understand it. Yeah. You know? So big learnings for you. And how do you Massive. and how do you think it's it's impacted you? The overall? whole experience. Yeah, the whole experience. Yeah, I think it shook my confidence deeply. Well, it's had two it's two, two impacts. One, it's definitely taught me to look longer, harder, understand, really noodle. You never understand business better than when you're starting a business or finishing a business. I'm probably the world's best versed. CEO in every single line of a PL and cash flow now, which is nice, and people and 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 so that's been that's been useful. And it's a really useful founding for then building a business which I, I was now. about to say. Yeah. What it's like circular life. Yeah. You know, so yeah. you know, building this yeah, I don't, there's a lot of building of this business that I don't think I could have done without that experience. So building a PL from bottom up, everything, you know, easy, easy peasy now. But then I think the other side of it is it's definitely rattled my confidence. It's rattled my confidence in my decision making. My confidence in my gut feel is probably a better way of just Because you're it. a real instinctive gut feel kind of person. I know you obviously look at the data and you're a brilliant marketer, but, but you've always struck me as someone that follows your gut, which yeah. I think is so important, by the way. Yeah, I'm quite, I'm quite good at assimilating lots and lots of inputs that are both rational and irrational inputs and getting to a direction and then, and then have a strong bias to action. So making a decision is more important than being right. Being right if you don't actually do anything is an, is just an exercise in intellectual stimulation. You need to make a decision and an 80% right decision or a 70% is better than no decision because you can always then make another decision to get it more right or to change direction. And by the way, the world is constantly moving. So what was right yesterday won't be right today anyway because there yeah. isn't an answer. Right? It's not maths. You don't get to the end and x equals four. So you have to be moving. And mm. I'm quite good at going, right, I, I know enough. I've got a strong gut feel bias to action, move. 
And at that, my confidence in that has definitely been knocked. I am definitely being a lot more rigorous. And in building the den, I'm working with very, very consciously with a partner whose thought style is much more rigorous and reflective to balance my much more instinctive you know, leap at it. And together we're we're pretty powerful, you know. So what are you doing to build that that confidence back? Because that, that just feels a real shame because I know you and I, you understand it was market conditions, but I still feel like it's really impacted you and you've been really hard on yourself, whereas actually <laughs> I think it will would still be the same. So what 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 are you doing to to build build that confidence? I'd like to really find a way to build your confidence. <laughs> I wouldn't I wouldn't worry about it. If you think about it, it's a bit like an extreme sport. So imagine Love you're doing an extreme analogy. sport, right? Let's let's take skiing because I'm I'm a skier. I'm definitely not an extreme skier. I'm a but right, I'm a skier and I'm getting better and better and better at skiing and I think I'm the bee's knees. And then I gamble on something and I've got the risk wrong and I hurt myself. That is a really important lesson and you will ski better as a result. It will improve your gambling. Now, yes, initially your confidence might be knocked, but your confidence and you might ski a little bit slower and a little bit more carefully, but as you ski faster again, you'll ski better because you've learnt. I think that's where I am, right? I'm in the slowly skiing faster again, but with a better awareness of of the risk and a better awareness of some of the... So it's, it's it's been like a massive signal that I've now gone, right, I now know when I see that shape in the snow, it's a bloody great rock. <laughs> Useful learning. <laughs> Ignore it. <laughs> Ignore it. And maybe I'm being careful Avoid on lots it. of those shapes for a bit whilst I work out which ones are rocks, but I've hit a bloody great rock. Useful. So I wouldn't see it as... I think confidence knocked is probably the wrong. It's confidence reshaped is is better. And it does build your skill, right? And that's life. Life is about this, isn't it? Yeah. Or from when you're a kid and you fall off a bike. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But it's it's just interesting because because confidence is is so important. But I love that what you said about, you know, it's, it's making you better. And now you're doing your own thing, which is where it's, you know, your purpose and your passion, which we're going to get onto very soon. <laughs> it's going to help that be even more successful, which is brilliant. So Back to uncomfortable. Can you pinpoint a moment that made you feel truly uncomfortable? Oh, goodness me. I think... I think I never thought of myself as a woman in business. I just thought of myself as a person in business or a business person or a marketer or whatever. And I think part of that is because I'm privileged enough to have grown up in... a bit Professionally grown up in Unilever, which is a very, very 50-50 business. In fact, it might even be more than 50% female mm. Unilever. It's very Dutch. It's like, well, we just we just rock along. We're just we're straight talking and we do business and we have fun. And it's all very... It's an amazing company. Anyone who's thinking about it, it's an amazing company. And then it's only as I sort of became more senior, you, you really start to navigate this woman in business world. And I am... I don't want to say I've got masculine traits. That's a, that's a funny way of describing it. But the traits that people look for in men in business, so outspoken, confident, relatively dominant, quite alpha. Physically, I'm quite present in a room. I walk in, I joke with one of my one of my friends. Anyone who knows me knows, knows my shape. You know, I walk into a room, tits out. You know, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not scared of who I am and I'm not scared of my voice. Oh. It's quite a blokey thing, and I, I sort well, of blokes tits out. But anyway, well, on, well they, they walk out ch- chest, <laughs> chest, out, chest out. Yeah, they just don't have you know the extra appendages that <laughs> I might have. But it doesn't mean I'm going to tuck my chest away. So the realization that my success, and in fact, I slightly cruise through the whole woman in business dynamic, is probably partly because I'm quite blokey, and what that means then for other women. And I had a real moment where I was asked on a panel and they asked me and they said, well, and I said, why are you asking, you know, why are you asking me? Because I was asked, why are you asking me? So I know what, what I'm bringing to the table. And they said, oh, we just went outspoken and this and that and the other. And as they were talking, I realised they were just describing the fact that they already had three men on the panel 
and they sort of wanted another man, but one ideally with some breasts. And I sort of realised the thing that made me real, really uncomfortable is that that my experience of being a woman in business is not everyone else's. And I am a woman in business, as are all of the women. And then the sort of veil dropped. And suddenly I was hyper aware of all the moments when I was being treated in a different way, when senior bosses would look at my legs or I would get talked over. or, And that's me, you know, as a very alpha female. And I sort of went through this real, how do we change this and how do we change the way of business so that the way to be successful in business isn't to be a man. And then someone asked me, will you come and do a thing on teaching women to be more confident? And I had an absolute, unfortunately, I think this person might have just caught me on a, on a day when I was being a bit reflective about all this. And I had an absolute flip out at, I can't remember who this person was, and said, look, no, teaching women to be more like men is not the solution for why 100%. business is this incredibly masculine thing. So I think all of that, being treated sort of as a successful woman in business because I'm more blokey, realising that other women are not having the same experience at all and then starting to see those moments when even I wasn't having this experience when I got on a lift with a senior leader and he made a joke about his wife's knickers and had to sort of face down another senior leader who very much was like, you know, nice legs and and all those things I would have laughed off historically because I'm quite blokey and suddenly I realised how they're affecting everyone else and indeed then they started to affect me. Also, we grew up in a culture where was just the way that men would comment you on just had the to way. Laugh. You had to laugh along yeah. or else you were a bad sport. Yeah. and Or a prude. And I love the fact it's now called out. Yeah. I love the fact. I was at a shoot the other day with the athlete that I represent and this chap had his arm around her shoulder and I could tell she felt really uncomfortable and I was just like to just flick it away and move mm. away he wasn't doing that to the guy next to him and it was clear she felt uncomfortable and I just went just move and she did and she was like thank you Gem she was like mm. because like he was in her space and we don't have to have that anymore whereas years ago we just accepted it I remember <laughs> many times with an old boss literally wanting to say please Stop looking here and look up. Mm. <laughs> you know? But I didn't because we just accepted that bad behaviour. I wouldn't accept that now. Yeah, and I don't I don't think I and I don't think I ever I ever saw it or felt it. Yeah, I, I I know what you mean. I know. Because it hadn't been called out and we were just we just we just kind of it was just the way it was. And I love the fact that now we are calling this out. And it, as uncomfortable as it is. I think we always resort to the sexual stuff on this, but actually I think what is much more significant in the workplace is it is the sort of slight subservience because what I do from a point of care, because I am apparently quite caring, as evidenced by this lady's feedback, so thank you very much, um, ends up being a point of subservience. So as, as an example, just as we started out on the journey for Eve to open our sale process... We're in a meeting room, and the other thing you must you must know when you try and go and raise investment for a business, it is one hundred percent male. I must have spoken to over two hundred people in the journey to try and raise investment for Eve, and there was one woman, one woman turned up on our screen, wow. and she definitely said her name. <laughs> yeah, as in only, only her name, wow. and that's it in the entire journey. So it's completely male, and that's fine. Even for me, I was like, wow, it's a long time since I worked in a hundred hundred percent male environment. Anyway, but the opening meeting, there's, there's a bunch of people and it's in an office, it's like a formally mm. office, it's all very formal. This is a lot going on, the chairman's there, all this sort of thing. And we get to the end of this meeting and there's a series of actions and a meeting that needs to go into the diary. And I go, right, shall I write all these actions and send them around and then I'll put the meeting in? And I got to the end of that sentence 
And everyone's nodding as you. And then suddenly went, no, I won't. Good. But that's the point. I do that because I'm like, I'm trying to care and get things to happen. And, and also you want things it. to happen, you let's be honest. Yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that is something as a woman, I don't know. And we have amazing, we have amazing male allies, right, who are out there noticing. And they're noticing when we lean in and do stuff and they're trying to lean in and they do lean in Agreed. back. My partner's one of those. He's amazing and he's really, really quick to go, no, no, don't, for God's sake, don't. I'll do that. Da, da, da. And really, really on it. But the responsibility we're placing on all the men to notice is massive, right? They're just going through their lives. It's not their job to work out when we're placing ourselves in a subservient. We need to hold the line and they will then learn but we have to we have to hold the line none of them are doing that intentionally so did someone else put the minutes together and yeah yeah someone yeah. else went of course of course Cheryl don't worry of course I'll yeah. do it but it yeah but it's but it, and it was down to it, it's you it's down to me to get yeah. and it's not about being cross or upset it's just going hang on a minute and it's not about then sitting there fiercely at the end of the meeting not saying anything it's going these need to happen I don't think it's me that should do it and someone else will immediately leap up but that is a much more grown-up way of of transferring this and we don't I don't think as, as women we've we've quite got there yet because we're a bit cross about it and then then we're a bit cross that the men haven't noticed and it's a bit like a relationship the husband doesn't notice that I'm doing all this stuff and it's like well, it's not the husband's they're not job, mind readers right? exactly they're not mind readers exactly yes. exactly <laughs> exactly but I'm glad that you didn't because I've done that a lot of times oh well I'll just get that done yeah. actually and it's fine to do it sometimes but as long as you're not always doing it yeah and, because and, at the end of the day you, everyone if, takes a turn and if you don't want to do it it's, it's it's about you then going I'm not going to do this time would you mind doing it and that's just not being a thing right and mm. everyone goes yeah right you know and have you noticed the difference since starting your own business which I'm about to move on to because I want to hear all about the den but have you noticed a difference um, in the way that people treat you to the way they treat the men around you yeah it's interesting so again so on the startup we are fundraising so it's a, again a very male world so if you're an investor and you're interested, yeah, I'll tell you all about it in yeah, just a moment. Yes, and, and it is it is going it's going to be an, it's going to be an incredible business and it's got a couple of incredible founders if I do say so myself. It is interesting. So I'm with a with a male co-founder. I think we're just calling him an ally now. We're not calling him a man anymore. We just renamed him. <laughs> an, ally. <laughs> an ally. Brilliant. So there's but me and Paul. an ally. Paul, Paul Billingsley. I think there is an assumption when we go into meetings there's an assumption that he's the numbers guy and I'm the creative guy. It's definitely a moment when when a lot of investors sort of have a moment where they go, oh, she seems to be running through the numbers and he seems to be talking about like the amazing experience. That's not what we thought. And there are definitely people that just talk to Paul, particularly in the world of property, which is very male. But then equally, there's a lot set up in the investment landscape, which is which is to try and support women. And there are a lot of conversations we go into where I need to be the lead and I am the lead. Sometimes I wasn't I'm not necessarily prepared. And there is a moment of me going, oh, God. All this stepping up stuff. Yeah, thought I could sit back <laughs> I in this I could sit back, So don't get me wrong. <laughs> so I think you, you definitely see that. I think a male-female founding partnership is is really powerful actually because we do have a different, very different style, and I think it's powerful in a room. And there are times when stuff needs to happen mano a mano, and it is helpful to have a man just to do the mano a mano thing. And the stuff when I can upset and, and disconcert a conversation, I said to you, I quite. Quite like being underestimated. Yeah. You know, bit yeah. of a hustler. Yeah. Got no problem with someone assuming I'm just the, you know, token female in a relationship, although it rarely happens. Yeah. Now, I, I agree with the powerful relationship between a, a, a male and woman. You're the same with, with Dan, aren't you? I, I have yeah. the same, yeah. and it's, um, it's, it's, it's brilliant. And there's definitely times when it's right for him to step up, and there's other times when it's right for me, but it's about knowing each other and knowing what's going to be best in that scenario. But again, I don't kind of think of him as he's a male and I'm a female. I just think we're just two founders trying to make our business 
as successful as possible and have some fun along the way. Completely agree with that. That's exactly all we need. So important to have fun. So it is time. <laughs> Let me talk about Let's the Den. Come on. Let's talk about your exciting <laughs> newish venture, The Den. Tell us more. Yeah. Paul and I worked together for a long time. Paul was the MD of Adam and Eve Advertising Agency and a brilliant partner for many years for me. Uh, and we've been through lots of trials and tribulations, both at the AA and Eve. And we'd always, I mean, we get on and we, we are good together and we're pretty effective and we knew we were and we'd always talked about doing something and sort of never really like we talked about where we'd have the Christmas party and where the office might be <laughs> never really discussed what the thing was until about three years ago when I, I very much had the intention of exiting Eve in a much more positive way mm -hmm. and having enough funds to then start something so we started talking about about three or four years ago about what it is we wanted to do Paul has had an amazing career. I've had an amazing career. So for us to leave our respective amazing careers, it needed to be something really big, really meaningful that we were going to leap out of bed every day to not earn any money for a long time. Yeah, I know that one. To make happen. <laughs> and we sort of sat there and we talked about, you know, what are the big problems? Because you need a big problem for, for a big solution, big and meaningful problem. Um, in society and I've got a background in psychology he coaches kids football and has a massive passion for developing young people we both have kids verging on teenagers mm -hmm. and we couldn't move for the absolute surround sound on on mental health when we started this conversation it was about six months before the Molly Russell incident right. when um, you know, a young teen girl took her own life largely due to her relationship with, with social media which went up, which ended up going all the way to the to the courts with Facebook. I'd come out of a business where I'd seen a lot of the young people that were coming to me coming in with real mental health challenges, mm. and and we'd also sort of then had COVID in the middle of it all, and we sort of sat there and went, "What is the problem? The problem is isolation, right? Loneliness and isolation is at chronic levels amongst young people, and unhappiness as a result is at lowest all time." Happiness. And COVIDist. COVID absolutely started, exacerbated something that was already growing massively. And so they're sort of stuck in their bedrooms, disappearing down a rabbit of social media, doing all of their socialising digital by default. So even if they have got extensive friendship groups, it's happening over an Xbox headphone or over a screen. It's not happening face to face. And that's then causing a whole load of double and treble thinking. And teenagers aren't able to develop what they need, which is their social selves. And that's like, as a, as a psychologist and a, and a neuroscientist, like your teenage years are about developing your social self. It's basically the number one function. It's not your GCSEs. It's to learn who the frick you are in society yeah. and who you are independent of your parents and family. And then we kind of went, well, where are they meant to be doing that? We can get as cross as we like about oh, big tech and social media. But fundamentally, all the funding has disappeared for, for youth services and youth centres. High streets have been decimated. All those places you used to hang out when you were a kid, they aren't there. There's no underage drinking anymore. Not that we should be underage drinking, but we learn a lot of that stuff, you know, 16, 17 in pubs. That does not happen now. All the leisure centres have gone. So where are you meant to knock about with your mates? Where are you meant to do this, you know, learning who you are and, and you know, meeting your first girlfriend, boyfriend, whatever friend? Mm. It's, it's just not there. Trying to get to the old solutions, which is, well, government should provide and funding should come from charity. It just wasn't going to happen. And then we spoke to parents and they said two things. They said, our number one biggest concern is the loneliness of the lives our children are leading. And we asked an open question. What is your biggest concern about the life of your, child, your, life of your child? Loneliness. Number one. Every single time. Every group of parents. And two, we are paying through the nose for our children to do stuff and very happily paying until they hit 11. 
and then suddenly it all disappears. Suddenly there's no longer a gymnastics club, an art club and brownies. Parents are scrabbling around going, mm. how do I give my kids what I know they need, which is a space to be with their friends, which is safe. And it's social. And it's social. Yeah. So we went, well, there's a bloody solution here. Really obviously, right? There is create a space which is inspiring and engaging where teenagers can come together and come together in a, in a safe way. And let's ask, let's use parental funding to fund that rather than trying to get this funded by government. And let's target this at the, at the, the, the this is bang in middle England. This is not about deprived, vulnerable communities who have loads of problems, but actually isolation in teenagers isn't one of them. They're spending a lot of time together. Mm. This is a middle middle England problem where actually there is money to solve it sitting in the in the in the parents and the teenagers are very happy to you know they're spending money on bubble teas and you know so they're really happy to go out and drop 20 quid so you get there's a commercial model here right there's teenagers who've got enough money to spend on the night there's parents who'll pay for a subscription and we can create an amazing inspiring network of, of venues so the fundamental concept is a, a network of youth membership clubs with like amazing events fantastic games, bubble teas to die for, and most importantly, a place you can find out who you are and who your friends are and find your tribe. All run by, by the way, brilliant youth workers. So it's totally safe. It's totally supportive. What I really, really like about what you said there is you started with asking the parents and actually now it's about the parents' funding. Yeah. That is... Well, it's quite frankly quite genius. It, you know, you've got a problem, pay some money to solve it. Yeah, and and they're keen to. And actually, when you step back, you know, what are the kids kids that are on PlayStation and Xbox, which is what they're doing for a lot of the time? The parents are paying those subscriptions already. But I'd rather that thing was together with their friends out of the house than in the bedroom, disappearing into what what was the safest place in your home is now, quite frankly, the most dangerous. Yeah. I was listening to Scott Galloway. He was talking on Twitter about how it's so important for young people to be out the house. He said something like, you should only have seven hours, i.e. when you're sleeping, and the rest of the time you need to be out. And that is directly correlated to how successful you'll be in your career and also love life and friends and, and the importance of, of socialising. Why do you think... It's so important for teens to be socialising and not with us as parents because I find it difficult. My, my son's only eight, but I'm like, oh, he's not going to want to be around me. But you would say, good, he yeah. shouldn't want to be around you, wouldn't you? I, well, I totally would. So we are we are a social species, which means that your and let's get really clinical that your success in society is dependent on your ability to navigate society. So it's your dependent on your ability to get on with people to energise people around something that you want to do, to bring people together, to resolve conflict, to find support. That is the definition of your success. And, the, and people that can't do those things, can't navigate society, end up unhappy. Mm. One of the biggest factors in longevity is social activity, right? It's having friends and family around you and being involved socially. We are a social species. It is fundamental to us. We have created the worst possible sort of social experiment at the moment we've literally taken an entire generation of, of formative young people and isolated them in small boxes there is a piece of data which um, a gentleman called James Hayhurst gave us uh, that Purcell did that was suggesting that young people were spending less time outside their bedroom than people in high security prisons goodness me <laughs> this is so fundamental it is fundamental to the way that our brains and ourselves and our identity and our happiness develops and I don't really want to see where this experiment ends. I want to stop it and create something much, much better really quickly. 
So what can we do to amplify all the great stuff you're doing? What, what can people do? Well, I think the most important thing with the den is that we have got a really fierce competitor. We are competing with big tech. Yeah. Right. So we need to make a space that is more inspirational, more inspiring and more fun than what you can get on your screen. Right. That is no. I, I love a big hairy challenge. Right. That is no that is no small hag. Oh, you just used you made it into an acronym, didn't yeah. you? You're just telling me about all about simple <laughs> language. And then big, exciting, hairy, audacious goal. I BHAG. love that. I love a BHAG. Yeah. But what we need to do then is create a space which is amazingly inspiring. So we've already started building a, a network of creative collaborators. We're working with an amazing street artist called Nick Mac. Thank you, Blank Walls, if you're listening. But what we really need is if you are in any way involved in young creative pursuits, those are the people we need to connect with because those are the people we need to surround every den with. Because what I know and what Paul knows is the way you attract people to a thing is creativity, right? That's what inspires people. So the heart of the den, every single den will be an amazing creative space. It will look amazing. It will feel amazing. It will change all the time. It will have amazing music. It will have amazing events. And you as an adult will be like, I cannot believe you get to do this. Yeah, exactly. It's making me jealous. So where can people find out about The Den? Uh, you can find, well, you can come, come and find me and Paul on LinkedIn, obviously, or you can find The Den on LinkedIn. We've got a website, which is www.thedenclub.uk. Uh, you can find us on Insta. You can find us on TikTok. Please forgive us. We have just started our life on Insta and TikTok, so it's fairly thin. So please don't expect to come up and find loads of stuff. Or, you know, drop me Got an email. start somewhere, haven't yeah, you? Yeah, you can, you can find us all over the internet. <laughs> and come and talk to us at the den, particularly if this interests you and, you know, you're interested in getting involved in a business in this space. So why do you think it's important for us to get uncomfortable? Why do you think it's important for, for brands and leaders to get uncomfortable? If I'm not uncomfortable, I, I make uncomfort. My mum used to always say the devil makes work for idle hands. I definitely am a bit of a stirrer if I'm not uncomfortable. Happiness, human happiness, comes through developing yourself and seeing yourself grow. Um, and when you stop growing, you, you you get dissatisfied, or certainly I do, mm. uh, and a lot of people do. Discomfort do is, is, the, is the point of growth Yeah, in everything, right? Discomfort when you're doing an exercise, that's when it's got difficult, that's where you're growing. Discomfort when you're learning, that's when it's difficult, that's when you're growing. Discomfort in a conversation, that's probably when you're learning the most. Like this one. Like this one. <laughs> and that's what makes you makes you bigger and better and more able to, to help other people and to support society and to achieve the things that will make you happy. So without discomfort, you would never have learned to walk. And on that note, thank you so much, Cheryl, for joining in the not-so-prickly chair, but with prickly... With the prickly cactus looking prickly at me. Prickly cactus. Thank you so well, thank much. Thank you, Gemma. It's been lovely. I'm Gemma Greaves, and Are You Sitting Uncomfortably is a fresh air production. And the producers are the lovely Izzy Clark and Clara Kavanagh. If you enjoyed our now award-winning podcast, then please do me a massive favour and follow us, recommend us. And if you're feeling really kind, leave us a review. We do read and listen to all of them and we appreciate it so much. The bigger the following, the more opportunity to have the best guests. And I want to have these uncomfortable conversations with awesome people like Cheryl. Thank you so much. Thank Until you. Until next time. <laughs>